The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And although it's not all that convenient, it's our time now to have a conversation about how equanimity can be cultivated and used in our lives for not just our own well-being, but really as a way to contribute to the wider world. And I'll just share a few things and hopefully others will share some thoughts so that it can be somewhat interactive. But obviously, especially at this time, with uh, more conscious looking at the roots of racism in our culture and police violence and the pandemic and economic uh, insecurity that many people are facing, besides any number of other things that might be going on in people's lives and going around in the world globally, there's a lot moving. And of course, there's always a lot moving, but it certainly feels intense and rich where I'm sitting. And so, you know, the relevant question, the obvious question really is how to be a human being when it's like this. And, you know, I'm a relatively privileged human being. So, so many people, the intensity of what their experience is so much greater than mine. So it's still the same question though, how best as a human being in our swirling world with the great uncertainty and the truth of the aging body and all that, and all that's in motion that we don't control, how to show up to that world, how to relate to uncertainty and insecurity. And even the ambiguity, like one of the things that I think throws some of us more controlling types for a loop is we have developed and maybe partly um, conditioned by society, you know, it's sort of the cult of competency, like, okay, life is complex, life is difficult, but I'll develop competency and I'll master this so I know what to do. And this can happen in the realm of parenting young children or your job or mastering and gaining competence in terms of your relationship with your partner or any number of social issues. You know, I'm somebody who understands the underlying roots of racism. I'm one of those good white people or any number of those sort of imagined, like, oh, I'm there, so now I don't have to worry. I've, I've mastered that, I know what I'm doing. And then what we do is we pretend that having some fixed idea, like I'm right, that kind of a fixed idea, somehow resolves the insecurity. But there's really I think what life has taught me at least, we don't ever get to that place of perfect competency, at least not on that level where my mind has so thoroughly comprehended what's going on, I actually know what to do with perfect confidence. Have you had that experience anywhere? I mean, we have that pretend experience a lot where we pretend that what we think we should do is certain. 
Like, no, 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 I'm right. I really have thought this through. And it's true, I mean, we do learn. So there are places in our life where we have more clarity, more useful intuition, and places where we don't have much clarity or intuition, our past experience isn't really informing what we should do or not do. So it's not to say that gaining competence isn't a good thing for human beings to do. Clearly, it's a useful thing, but it doesn't give us solid ground. So we should gain competence because it's a useful thing to do, it's a way to contribute to our own well-being and others, but it doesn't give us perfect security in any way. So in those places where we're having trouble gaining competence, they tend to be really good teachers for us. Whether it's, you know, your relationship with a parent or your relationship with a partner or your relationship with some of these burning social issues like racism is so much more clear and alive these days. And we might realize that I don't know how to be a white person or I don't, you know, depending on your particular cultural location or you know, how to show up in our place and contribute. And that can be really disturbing to know that we don't know. And that's really where equanimity comes in. You know, it's really that quality of love and wisdom that doesn't need conditions, and in particular my mind, my heart, and how it is understanding it doesn't need things to be other than they are. That's why equanimity, although we use it as a quality of love, we experience it as a quality of love that can include, that can show up. It's, it's that quality of love that's really informed by insight and wisdom. And in that way, it really is the foundation of every other kind of love, from basic friendliness to a fierce compassionate response to really appreciating what's good and beautiful, being grateful and appreciative. All of those qualities, the full range of love, needs equanimity, needs the wisdom of equanimity underneath. This more um, unshakable, unflappable, stable quality of the heart that doesn't isn't dependent on anything. Like if we have sort of some some of us might have this where we're we need to be around suffering because that's our stance. I'm the compassionate one. Or we need to be around beautiful things to appreciate. But when there's a lot when that equanimity is well understood and well developed, then when things inevitably change, the mind isn't disturbed because it wasn't dependent, it wasn't practicing being dependent. Okay, this is where I feel comfortable, this is where I feel competent, and then we get dependent. And then we're, if we're dependent on that particular circumstance, then whether we see it or not, we're afraid of it changing. Because I feel comfortable here, but I don't feel comfortable with it changing. And we can really resist. And Carolyn mentions in the chat, if you haven't uh, read it, I've been feeling numb lately. For a sensitive person, this is unusual. 
I'm sad and, and am having a hard time not feeling judgment about this. Yeah, and remember, uh, we don't want to just rely on the first look, like that, what we might call numbness and sadness. You know, just keep looking at what that is, because, yeah, it might be numb, it might be sad, but it might also be a kind of wisdom that knows that I don't have to react, or I don't even have to act. And in some places, not every place in our life, but in some places in our life, where we neurotically feel compelled to react or respond, it's a real gift to tell ourselves, you can show up, you can feel what you're feeling, but don't feel like you have to do anything. You can do something, you can respond, but I'm giving myself permission, I'm giving the heart permission just to be present. Because ultimately we want to get to that place where the heart, the mind, isn't compelled neurotically to do, and isn't compelled neurotically to avoid doing. That doesn't have that fixed stance. And we're, like I said at the beginning, we're more interested in cultivating that presence, that even presence, that very nimble. And we're kind of giving it over to nature, the enormity of causes and conditions that are internal and external, that we're all swimming in, we're giving over my response, my personal response to the moment, to the moment itself, to the conditional, lawful, very complex, interdependent world, right? So it's such a relief, and you can even reflect on this every morning. You're lying in bed, you've woken up, it's time to get up, but before we get out of bed, lying there, you know, uh, there's a, sort of a joke that Sylvia Borstein has in one of her books. I'll just have to paraphrase it, but it's like, you know, so far, totally fine. My mind's really balanced. You know, I haven't hit anybody. I haven't gotten in an argument. I haven't acted out in unskillful ways. But pretty soon I'm going to have to get out of bed and get dressed and live my life, right? So we start in that relative relative simplicity of being in bed or still being in our sort of secluded space in our bedroom. But we know as soon as we turn on the radio or as soon as we start looking at the phone or as soon as we head over to work or as soon as we enter the relationship with the people we live with, things are going to get exponentially more complex. And we can, like I mentioned earlier, fall into that idea that, okay, I gotta be, I need a plan. So the way I'm gonna defend myself from chaos is I'm gonna have a plan. And when we cling to a plan, then we make other things wrong. We're in that dualistic world. My plan is right, other plans are wrong. Now I'm not saying plans aren't good, but clinging and the mind being dependent on being right, that's not so helpful. Instead, we might, like, this is the, the reflection I'm suggesting, you know, we're lying there, we know life is going to get more complex as we get out of bed and start living our day. So we resolve, like, what I really resolve for, what I'm really interested in, is a kind of nimble balance. A balance 
that isn't dependent on whether the situation is going well or not well, whether I'm liked or I'm being disliked, whether the situation is pleasant or unpleasant, whether I think I know what I'm doing and I have a lot of competence or I'm in some moment where I don't have much competence. I don't want to lose that balance. And the balance isn't like a stance, it's, it's really this kind of love, like I really want to be useful to myself and to others, I want to contribute. And the way to do that is to maintain my balance. Because when I'm balanced, which is another way of saying when I'm unafraid, well then I can connect. Being soft, not afraid, is a gift to ourself and to the world. I mean, imagine, you, we all know what it's like when we're around somebody who's tight and afraid. It activates our own habit of being tight and afraid. And we're around somebody who's really soft and open and in their own skin, as we sometimes say. It's such a powerful invitation to be who we are, not to feel like we have to be different or you know, present ourselves when somebody is like really okay being a human being with intestinal gas and you know this and with that and it's a real gift. So as you go forward in the evening, you know, you might think about places in your life where you've noticed this equanimity and places in your life where it seemed to be lacking. And just unpack that a little bit, maybe in one of your, uh, in a comment. So we can start to reflect together about what is it in those places in my life where, where I already have a lot of balance? What is it that is allowing the heart and mind to have a lot of equanimity or more equanimity? And those other places, what is in the way of equanimity. Jennifer writes here, can you talk about balance when there is um, underlying depression? Yeah, well, this is the, the great chicken and egg phenomenon, not just in Buddhism, but I think just generally in spiritual teachings. You know, when we're really balanced and emotionally and physically and socially healthy, like we feel like we belong, we feel like we're loved, the mind's healthy and balanced, the body's healthy and balanced, then it's pretty easy, it's certainly relatively easy to see things as they are, it's relatively easy to be kind and wise and to develop kindness and wisdom. And when we're hurting, whether it's because of depression or any other, you know, kind of difficult circumstance, inner or outer, well, you know, we see this in children when they're um, hit by suffering because of some difficult circumstance, they tend to revert and act as if they're younger than they are. Well, this doesn't stop when we have a big body and we're an adult. When we're overwhelmed with depression, that sort of emotional imbalance, whether it's regardless of what the underlying causes for the depression are, or financial insecurity, or whether it's an outer cause or an inner cause, 
when things are rough, it's really hard to be somebody who learns, right? So often much of our lives, and just depends on our particular location and circumstance, but for sure a lot of the time we're not really interested in developing, we're not really capable of developing deep insight. What we're doing is a more foundation, the more foundational work of healing and stabilizing. And, you know, in uh, Buddhist terms, a lot of that work is just on the level of what we call sila, where we're taking care of our relationships with others just so that they're not going to haunt us. So if I've been a jerk over there, then how do I make amends over there so that, that the um, unhealed relationship I have with that person doesn't haunt me? So when my mind gets settled, then I go, oh God, I treated that person that way. I said that to that person. It haunts us, all that unfinished business. And it's the same thing with people who have had abuse or other kinds of difficulties or even trauma from the past. We have to use the effective tools to heal and to make amends and to take care of the wounds. And it's the same thing like now where the reality of racism is just more apparent because of probably to a large degree because of technology and and you know these little videos that are taken don't lie and we're all faced with seeing things that were easier to dismiss when we didn't have that sort of visual image of somebody being killed before our eyes in a way that just clearly strikes the heart as being not right. And so then that's, now we're going to respond. And so this is the way it always is in spiritual life, human life, is when things are, when we are the, have the good fortune and the, our life and the surroundings allow the heart to be more reflective and to do the more subtle work of looking for the roots of the deepest suffering, then we do that work. And then when outer circumstances, you know, basically some version of survival gets triggered, whether it's on a social level or economic level or just in terms of just physically surviving an illness or violence, well then, of course, we deal with that. And we deal with that still. We're still practicing, but we're really practicing on this more dense or gross level. Like, what does kindness look like when someone is attacking me? Or what does kindness look like, what does compassion look like when I see a video like that? And it can be sort of a shadow, like an escape, to think, oh, no, no, I'm, I need to go meditate. I'm not saying we should stop meditating when things get intense. It's just that the, the balance shifts because something is calling for our attention. And can we find a skillful mind state that says, no, 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 I need to do that. Because when we look carefully, a lot of the no, 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 I'm a Buddhist who does a lot of meditation, we'll notice that there may be something off there. I mean, each of us have to figure it out for ourselves. 
we can't really judge other people in terms of the choices they're making, which is, you know, sometimes common where people, you know, like, why aren't you in the streets or something like that. But we do want to be aware of that shadow, just like there might, the shadow might be that I always, until the world is perfect, I'm not going to look within. Well, that's just as much of an ignorant, fixed response as I can't get engaged in the messy world until I'm a Buddha, until I do all my inner work. So it's really a dance of doing both, but in any moment we might be more doing the external, orienting towards what's calling for our attention from the external world, and other moments really retreating from what's going on in the external world and doing the more inner work. Thanks, Jennifer. And then Patricia writes here, feeling overwhelmed with grief, lots of crying. What does it mean to have equanimity in this? What does that look like? Well, there's nothing wrong with grief and sadness. It's really a question of what the mind is doing with it and whether it's identified with the grieving. What would balance look like when the heart is breaking? You know, as we see things that we haven't seen clearly before, you know, it might be like, for example, if we had a relatively superficial, simplistic view of things and then new information came our way and now our view of things is less simplistic and less superficial, well, there's a real grieving of We've lost ignorance, but the mind used to be dependent on that ignorance, and there will be a sense of loss and a sense of being born into something new that we don't understand. And maybe grieving happens. But sometimes the mind will get identified with the tears, but it's just another movement, just like laughter is another movement. Maybe it's okay, and you can even bring this phrase in, Patricia, is it okay for this grief, this emotion to be moving? Can it be given permission to move? Does it make me dysfunctional as I do what needs to be done, cook my food, make the call? And if it does, if it seems to be sort of a vortex that the mind gets lost in, then really look if them ask the you know ask the mind like what kind of meaning are you making up about this feeling of sadness because it might you might be able to have the sadness in a more simple way like can there be the sadness without an explanation or defining it or telling ourselves what it's about because our actual subjective experience is there's this grief or there's this sadness there's this trembling, this movement, this visceral whatever. And is it okay to soften and allow? Or do I need to defend and tighten? And just explore like direct, I just want to be skillful. I just want to take care of this life. I don't want to create, you know, traps that reverberate and cause more problems for myself and my relationships as things unfold.
It's sort of profound when we realize, not just for others, but even for ourselves, that we can't take somebody's suffering away from them. And we can't take our own suffering away from us, from ourselves. We can only understand it. And then that changes who we are, it changes how we respond. But our job isn't to sort of put ourselves in opposition to suffering. Our job is to want to understand it. At least that's how the Buddha sort of lays it out. We don't understand things well enough to know how to respond. So we take the position of getting interested in suffering and the end of suffering. This is from Tanisara, The Grit That Becomes a Pearl. Tanisara is a well-known Dharma teacher in both the early Buddhist tradition, but others as well, uh, later Buddhist traditions. And um, she practiced as a Buddhist nun in the Thai forest tradition for a number of years, but now is married to Kitasaro, and they teach together have a retreat uh, place in South Africa. She writes, As we listen more deeply to suffering, we begin to notice non-suffering. The heart realizes its innate courage, strength, and invincibility. This journey through pain and suffering burns away the impurities, and what is revealed is something pristine, clear and beautiful like a moonlit pearl, the tender, merciful heart, and its infinite ability to receive the cries of the world. So any more comments from folks? We have a little bit of time. It'd be nice if there's some questions or even reflections that come to mind. And Wynn is here too. Wynn, feel free. Yeah, how does insight observation facilitate connection to the outside world? That's a good question. I mean, the, the one of the expressions of the deepening of insight is less fear. And the mind is experienced, the heart is experienced as being less dependent or less fixed. So then without that, without as much fear and without as much fixedness, like the mind always being fixed or attached to stances, to view, then that mind is more capable of seeing clearly and then what I say and do and how I respond it's going to come more, it's going to come out of that more open, less fixed, less fearful place. It will be more useful. So that's the thing. Insight, we're, we're understanding and the flavor of that deepening of insight is non-fear. Not being fixed. And sometimes, you know, we'll call it being light or released or open, but the functional difference is that 
the mind is less governed by fear and greed and dependence. And that just is, I mean, it's really the, in a spiritual sense, it is the definition of competence, right? Because that mind can be competent because, not because it knows everything, right? There are probably really wise, awakened beings who don't have a lot of worldly knowledge. You know, they just have had limited experiences, so they don't have that cumulative experience to sort of tell them what to do in a particular situation. But they're extremely good learners because there's no fixedness and fear coloring how they're seeing a particular moment. So how they show up in that moment and how they respond will really have a great breadth and depth and nimbleness. And that's one of the things you see with people who practice a lot. They just tend to be fresher when you know they're doing their life. And it's really great when you have that opportunity to hang out with people who've been practicing for a while. And that's really how you can tell. You know, it's it's not enough to look at somebody's resume and see how many retreats they've done or they practice with this great teacher or that great teacher. You really need to hang out with them when things are a little sticky and, you know, and don't go the way they want things to go and just see how they do the, their own particular dance of life and how they, you know, how they manage when there's pain in the body and when they have a headache and when traffic is bad and, you know, and do they, are there, is their mind constantly getting entangled, getting in tight places and then acting out of that tight place in a way that makes other people tight? Well, I'm not interested in practicing in a way that leads there, right? Are you? <laughs> I don't think so. You know, we're interested in practicing in a way that goes in a different direction. And, you know, whether we call that freedom or lightness or nimbleness or released, a heart that's released. But I think in terms of what we've talked about tonight, it really is that, has that flavor of non-fear and non-fixedness. Any other thoughts before we wrap up our time? Even just reflections about how you've been showing up especially those of you here in the Twin Cities. Yeah, just taking advantage of our spiritual community to check in. We have a few more minutes. Can you just say a few more words about competence in our spiritual work and competence in the world? Yeah, so when, if you didn't hear that, asked about um, what's the difference between competence in the world and competence in terms of our spiritual insight? And generally, you know, competence in the world means we're living our life and the mind is paying attention to some degree and it's doing that sort of preliminary cause and effect comprehending. Oh yeah, when I do this, this happens. And that's true like with knitting or you're being a ceramist or being a cook or being a lawyer or any number of things that we might do, including being in relationship with other people. It's just basic competence of cause and effect. And where that becomes spiritual is when the mind gets interested in taking the learning of cause and effect to the nth degree. 
So it's the mind is now sort of interested in the bigger picture. And when the mind gets interested in the bigger picture, it's looking at cause and effect, and it realizes everything is cause and effect. Everything is a natural, conditional process. And it's really starting to integrate that insight that it's nature and not self. So what that does, because from a self point of view, when I'm studying karma, cause and effect from a self point of view, I really want to learn it. I really want to be competent. I want to see when I do this, I get that. But all of it seems personal. Like how can I be more competent? How can I be better at this and better at that? So there's always a little tightness to it. But when I understand the truth of karma, cause and effect, conditionality, to the nth degree, I realize there's nothing outside of it. And then it really helps me deal with the world of cause and effect without being tight about it. And that's where spiritual insight, spiritual competency, is understanding that karma, cause and effect, doesn't refer back to anybody. Worldly competency is understanding that cause and effect is relevant. It's my teacher. And it helps me be good at anything. If we watch, observe cause and effect, we'll get better at whatever understanding, whatever we're observing. But, but we're always going to be seeing, sensing it from like me having some power because I understand cause and effect. And there's always some tension there. It's better to be competent as a self than incompetent, not know how things work. But still being a somebody who wants to be competent, it's still a stressful spiritual position. And how to be a human being with responsibilities without tightness? That's the question that uh, spiritual practice addresses. Yeah, and one more before we end, again from Carolyn. George Floyd's death has brought an opening to conversation with my four sisters about racism. We are in a flow now, a dance of ebb and flow, and I'm interested and encouraged experiencing it. And this, I'm really happy to hear that, Carolyn. And... and uh, I feel, you know, as a white person that this is a real opening for all of us white people. Because I think, you know, it's generally accepted by people who've been very reflective about what it means to be white, that part of what it means to be white is not to talk about race in a deep way. And to somehow think race is something that's relevant for other people, that's really one of the strong and subtle characteristics of whiteness. And so when white people start to talk about race and to realize its relevance, how much of our society and just just this dance of community we're part of is an expression of racial conditioning, it's a real step. But of course, the reason we don't talk about it is it's scary for us to talk about it. And, you know, I've really been reflective, especially these last 10 years, but, you know, always interested and always thought of myself as someone with some competence around race. I can now laugh at that. Um, but I, but always, like, 
talking with my family about race or talking with some of my friends about race was always and is now still a scary thing, like a no-go zone, basically, in a lot of my my relationships. And, uh, you know, I've had now a racial affinity group, a group of guys around my age, white men. We meet <clears throat> once a month now for several years and just practice talking about race. And we, you know, we read books that kind of help the conversation. But it's really powerful for me, I think, again, as a white person, to learn how to talk about race and to be a student of our, my racial conditioning. Um, and I think that's one of the powerful ways we can start unraveling the deep, deep roots of racism in our, in our society. And then Robert here, I often find that I operate out of once hurt, twice shy. Please speak about how we operate through our causes and conditions. Yeah, but because you see that, Robert, you're not completely caught. You couldn't write what you just wrote and being completely caught in that once hurt, twice shy. And probably, at the very least, you're curious about that pattern of being once hurt, twice shy. In the sense of like seeing it playing itself out and then just wondering in a non-aggressive way, do I need to be shy? What might be another way that I might respond? Because it might feel scary to speak up and say something, but it might, even though, and it might be messy actually, like you might get some pushback, but the aftertaste, the reverberation later might feel like really light, like, oh, that felt right. That felt really good. So really great to be with everybody tonight. So glad that you sh had the interest in showing up. Wishing everybody a lot of love and ease and comfort and fearless engagement in our world that needs us to show up right now. So be well, everybody, and have a peaceful night. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.